Chapter 6 is our sermon text this morning. Ephesians 6, we're going to have our Belgian Confession sermon here this morning, and then uh, we'll be in Luke tonight. Don't worry, we're still going through Luke. After that 16-month comment last week, I know how much you are all treasuring it. So Luke will be tonight, and I wanted to bring this sermon into the morning um, because I think there are many important things for us to consider here, and so this is not... I didn't really look back at the sermon I preached in Ephesians 6 while I was uh, writing this sermon, so I don't think it's the same. That would be um, miraculous. But uh, this will be more of a a focusing in on our spiritual battle and spiritual warfare that we see in Ephesians 6. Hear God's holy word given to us for our good. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. And then I'm going to read the part of the um, confession that we're considering. We won't read it together because there's a lot. But if you'd like to follow along, it's on page 74 in the back of the hymnal. Belgian Confession, Article 12. Page 74. Uh, Considering... Uh, Last week we considered God's creation of all things um, in the world that we see. Today we consider God's creation of the supernatural realm. So I'm beginning at the second column there at the bottom of page 74 on the right side. He also created the angels good. I'll, I'll read this for us. He also created, that is God, the angels good to be his messengers and to serve his elect, some of whom are fallen from that excellency in which God created them into everlasting perdition. And the others have, by the grace of God, remained steadfast and continued in their first state. The devils and evil spirits are so depraved that they are enemies of God and every good thing to the utmost of their power as murderers watching to ruin the church and every member thereof and by their wicked stratagems to destroy all and are therefore by their own wickedness adjudged to eternal damnation daily expecting their horrible torments. Therefore we reject and abhor the error of the Sadducees who deny the existence of spirits and angels and also that of the Manichees who assert that the devils have their origin of themselves and that they are wicked of their own nature without having been corrupted. Let's consider these things together. God's creation of the supernatural realm. I wanted to uh, pause or slow down a little bit in our confession as we consider it, uh, to consider this point today and uh, to do it through the lens of 
Ephesians 6. In our world, in our age, our time, this is one of the most doubted claims in all of Scripture. People will say, um, Christians, non-Christians, will say, yeah, I believe in God, uh, but the devil? Come on, he's a character you see in movies and in literature. And in in the Middle Ages, he was someone that uh, people thought was going to jump out of the woods and, and grab onto them. If you read the writings of Martin Luther, you'll, you'll see kind of that uh, the, the medieval mentality come out with, in regards to um, the devil and, and evil spiritual forces. Luther famously uh, chucked a, a jar of ink against the wall uh, at the devil. And so if you go to the castle where he was translating the Bible, you see splattered ink um, on the wall there. But people uh, reject this reality today, that which the Bible teaches. Why I wanted to talk about this today is because if we do not square with this reality, with this truth that's brought to us in Scripture, that there is a spiritual realm of angels and fallen angels, and that this spiritual realm interacts with our world, and uh, those evil spirits mean to alter the course of our lives, if we do not square with that, then we will not grow, we will not flourish spiritually. So I'm going to give a a generalized overview of this spiritual realm and then focus in on Ephesians 6 to talk about what it means for our lives and what we need to do in light of all of those truths. So as we consider Ephesians 6, there will be three points. Know that the battle exists, that's number one. Two, stand in God's strength. And third, learn the devil's schemes. We're not going to walk through each point of the armor of God today, uh, but rather we're going to focus in really on the nature of this spiritual battle and what we do because uh, we know that it is taking place all around us. So, the supernatural realm. God is the creator of all things visible and invisible. The confession tells us God created uh, the supernatural realm, angels, in order to be his messengers and to serve the elect. They carry out the purposes of God. Angels are not just personal beings, or they're not just uh, forces, they are personal beings, right? They are personal beings, not just spiritual forces. They're able to do various things. Uh, we see in Scripture they're able to rejoice. In Luke 15, uh, angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. They are able to worship. Right? We see that in Hebrews chapter 1, let all God's angels worship him. Or when Jesus is born, uh, on, in the Christmas story, the angels fill the sky. Glory to God in the highest. They worship God. They're also able to desire. In 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, Peter is talking about the uh, laying out of the gospel, the plan of redemption. Angels longing to look into the things of redemption. So they're personal beings with an intellect and a will. The confession also teaches us that uh, some of the angels who were created have continued in their state of purity and righteousness in which they were created, but others have fallen from that state. God's word uh, gives us little glimpses here and there of that angelic fall and doesn't really give us a sort of a a programmatic or accounting of it, um, but rather alludes to it here and there, which was obviously uh, shown or led by the prince of the power of the air, the devil. We know that this angelic fall is not reversible, right? So human beings fall into sin, they rebel against God. Human beings can be redeemed. 
and that is not something that is possible uh, for the angelic world. So that's sort of a generalized overview. God created them. They are part of God's creation, even though it's not part of the world that we see with our eyes. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, this is where we need to know uh, the implications for our lives and what we need to do because of it. So listen to what the confession says. The devils and evil spirits are so depraved that they are enemies of God and every good thing. They are pure evil. They stand against the purposes of God. They are always opposed to God and his purposes. And what is it that this supernatural realm is consumed with, at least the, the, the evil spirits, the evil demonic spirits, what are they doing now? The confession says, um, they are murderers watching to ruin the church and every member thereof, and by their wicked strategies to destroy all. This is what we need to see and what we need to know if we want to have any flourishing, any hope of spiritual progress in our lives by God's grace. We need to know that this battle exists. That's the first point in Ephesians chapter 6. Know that this battle exists. Look with me at verse 12 in Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul talks of a struggle, and the word there for struggle, it's not uh, in a battlefield shooting arrows across the way at one another. It's not even uh, being close in combat and using weapons. The, the, The word for struggle there is on the ground, wrestling with your enemy. In other words, it is the most desperate state of fighting when weapons have been abandoned and you're face-to-face with your enemy on the ground fighting for dear life. That is the kind of battle that Paul says this is. And then there are four descriptions of these spiritual evil beings, right? Rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. People look at that and they say, wow, Paul is, is really describing in detail um, the different kinds of spiritual beings. Why, why does he have these four different descriptions? And so some people take this verse and they go off into uh, really wild speculation. They think that Paul is giving some sort of hierarchy of the spiritual realm of demonic spirits. The rulers are above the authorities. The authorities are above the world powers and, and so on and so forth. And they map it out. And that's something we need to keep in mind too is you consider the spiritual realm, it's important to keep a biblically balanced perspective. And we're going to uh, consider that just in a few minutes. But what does Paul mean by having these four terms? Listen to what um, scholar Clinton Arnold says on that exact question. He says, why then does Paul line up these four terms rather than just simply say, our struggle is against evil spirits? Pay attention to what he says. He says, I think he does so for persuasive effect. He wants to wake believers up to the fact that the struggle is not over now that we are Christians. The struggle continues, and there are all sorts of mighty demonic spirits, listen, intent on bringing about our demise. We must know that this battle 
exists. You can imagine a person if they were plopped right into the middle of a battlefield and had no idea that a war was raging and refused to acknowledge that a war was raging, that person would not stand a chance in the middle of that battlefield, would they? So likewise, in the spiritual world, we need to know that this battle exists. And sadly, uh, because of the way that, that our world uh, often approaches this question, sort of laughing and scoffing at the idea that the devil is real and just sort of laughing it off. Because of that, there are many today, even in the church, who refuse to acknowledge that this battle is going on, this spiritual battle that is ongoing where the enemies of God are arrayed against the church of God and they are intent on bringing about the church's demise. They are pure evil. So consider that Paul uses all four of those descriptions and even if we just consider the last one, They are um, spiritual forces of evil. In other words, spiritual forces who are evil are pure evil. And they'll, they'll do whatever it takes to bring about our demise. Listen to what Reformed Pastor John Stott says. If we hope to overcome them, that is the spiritual forces of evil, we need to bear in mind that they have no moral principles, no code of honor, no higher feelings. They recognize no Geneva Convention to restrict or partially civilize the weapons of their warfare. They are utterly unscrupulous and ruthless in their pursuit of their malicious designs. They are spiritual forces of wickedness. Intent on bringing about our demise. If we do not know that, we will not spiritually flourish in Christ. Where do they operate? In the heavenly realms, as Paul says at the end of verse 12. That doesn't mean they're, they're up at this place that has no connection to us, because uh, all throughout Ephesians, what Paul drives home is that the realities which we lay hold of in Christ are in the heavenly realms. In other words, in the spiritual realms, in the heavenly places. We're, uh, Paul says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul says that we have been raised up and given all the blessings with Christ in the heavenly places. So we have an interest in that part of God's creation, the heavenly realms. Paul's not saying that as if to say it's up in the sky somewhere and you don't have to to worry about it. That's not why he says it. In fact, this is a battle which is always going on. This is a battle which never ceases. This is a battle in which Christians need to engage in each and every day. This is something that the believer needs to be aware of. In fact, you talk to people who, uh, you know, perhaps they were not Christians at some part of their life and someone tells them, you know, something like, come to Jesus and he'll solve all your problems and you come to faith in Christ and you realize now that you, that you have faith in Christ, there's more problems than you even knew existed. Your life is even more challenging because of this battle that goes on. Um, these demonic spirits and powers are pervasive all throughout the world. It's not just in developing countries. It's not just in communist countries. It's not just in dictatorial countries. These forces are per- per- pervasive. They work in the free world too. They have all kinds of footholds in the world around us. And so, uh, just two points that we consider before uh, we go on. Uh, Paul is not saying these things so that we start to think that there is a demon underneath every tree and behind every door. That's to, to really miss the brilliance of our enemy, right? It's, it's not with this overt, 
always um, abundantly spiritual manifestation of this world. That's not what we're meant to look for. It, it manifests itself more so in, in, in our lives, in our time, it manifests itself more so in, in the home when uh, for no reason whatsoever, all of a sudden you find yourself uh, at odds with your spouse and it goes on and on for a couple of hours and then a couple of days and then a couple of weeks and you see the ways in which your relationship has been severed. And you don't understand, you've not taken the time to see that you have a common enemy. And you need to be fighting the same battle because there's an enemy that you both have intent on bringing about your demise. So it's not the overt, Frank Peretti, overly spiritual manifestations. It's the ways in which he works, the brilliance of our enemy. And then also, uh, we just mentioned C.S. Lewis somewhat famously said that uh, demons are equally pleased with two basic errors. Uh, in regards to what people think about them. One is, is rejecting that they exist, right? Rejecting that this spiritual realm exists and not worrying about it. And the second is believing too much in what the implications are for that world. Seeing a demon underneath every tree and behind every door. And so C.S. Lewis says both of those two errors, uh, demons are equally pleased with them. So what we need to understand is throughout all of Ephesians and all of this passage in general, what is it that Paul says? He says, stand in the Lord, stand in the strength of his might. And when you have done everything, stand. So he expects success. He expects that Christians will be able to work and operate even in the midst of this. So the power of our enemy does not negate the transcendent power of our God. And that brings us to our second point, and that's this. The Christian life relative to this spiritual battle must be lived in God's strength. It must be lived in God's strength. Go back to the beginning of our passage, verse 10. I wanted to consider verse 12 first to really set the table for this world, this spiritual realm, and how it relates to us, and to see the pervasiveness of these dark forces. But verse 10, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Paul says, In order to engage in this spiritual battle, that's a part of all of our lives in Christ, in order to engage in this spiritual battle, we need strength. So the question is, what is the source of our strength? So if you were to ask, say, Oprah, where we find our strength? You look inside of yourself, you find the spark of divinity within yourself, you dig down deep, you self-actualize, you realize the strength that you have within yourself, and then uh, you, you, you show that forth, right? Find the spark of divinity within yourselves. Paul, in stark contrast to that, says, be strong, not in you, not in your own strength, be strong in the Lord. And so fundamentally what we need to understand about uh, spiritual warfare, what we need to understand about this battle that is ongoing and raging in the Christian life is that it is not a battle which we can fight on the merits of our own strength. It's not a battle fought from what we find within ourselves. And that's why we started by considering verse 12, because that shows the, the, the nature of the power that we are up against, of our enemy. When we consider that verse, we consider verse 12, we consider that uh, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion and has more experiences with the human heart than any other being other than God, and he knows the tricks 
and he knows how to make people fall into sin. And he has legions of his own beings standing with him, lusting after claiming more and more souls to send them to hell. We must understand that it is not by our own strength that we fight this battle. We must understand that it is by the power of a sovereign God who loves us and who is more powerful than the power that is arrayed against us. And here's the the key. He is willing to share that power with us in Christ and in the gospel so that we might stand. That is the key. The power is not ourselves, but it is God. Psalm 62, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, power belongs to God. Isaiah 26.4, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. I am not an everlasting rock. You, beloved, are not an everlasting rock. The Lord your God is. That is the source of your strength. And the wonderful promise is that God desires to share that power with us if we want to stand in this spiritual battle and that's the picture that Paul gives to us stand stand firm it's it's not the uh, retreating or advancing as much as it is the standing stand firm in the Lord Paul says that we do it through the power of God to go back to what uh, that scholar Clint Arnold says about how we attain this power. He says this, God imparts his power to his people in a personal way. It is not accessed through performing incantations, reciting formulas, or wearing magical charms. God empowers us through his indwelling spirit and on the basis of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. By entering into salvation with Christ by faith, we are linked to his work in the past. Therefore, on the basis of his blood and his cross, we have forgiveness of sins and freedom from the compelling grip of the principle of sin. Paul says in Romans 6 that our old self was crucified with him. On this basis, we can say no to temptation because its power has been broken. We receive this power from God through the Holy Spirit on the basis of being united to Christ by faith. And Paul weaves that thread all throughout Ephesians. All throughout Ephesians. Chapter 1, he prays that the eyes of the hearts of the believers might be enlightened so that they might know, verses 19 and 20, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul says, I pray that your hearts might be enlightened, awakened to this truth of this power that you have inside of you. And there are many people who live their lives as Christians, live their lives in Christ, and do not have the eyes of their hearts awakened to this power and understand the kind of power that has been given to us in the Holy Spirit to overcome sin, to stand firm in the Lord, to say no to all of the wiles and the schemes of the devil. Paul says, I pray that your hearts might be awakened to this truth. He goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 3, that God would grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man. To have your inner man strengthened in Christ and the gospel by the spirit. And then he concludes that prayer in Ephesians 3 by saying, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. And 
The hope of all of this is that God displayed that power where? In Christ. In the resurrection power of Christ. That's what we need to know, is that the way in which we saw our Lord and our Savior defeat sin and evil at the cross and in the resurrection, it is that power that is at work within us. Come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death, the God of life. No grave could ever restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. That is the power that Paul is talking about. And the the metaphor he uses is uh, the armor of God. And we're not going to unpack every piece of the armor today as we're talking about other things, the nature of this battle. But the armor of God is the gospel. The armor of God is the gospel. Every point of that power, if you consider it, it, it doesn't, it's not about exalting our own strength. It's about putting on what, what the gospel is for us. The, the breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that protects you, the waist belt of truth. That is the the center, the very core of our existence, the truth that we find in God's word. We stand, Christian life, we stand in God's strength, not our own, not our own strength. And then finally, we need to learn the devil's schemes. Uh, The devil will do almost anything to sabotage your faith. You ever uh, dealt with somebody who compulsively lies? You understand that they can go in an infinite number of directions, They can always dodge and duck and go a different way and try a different path. The truth is very straight. The truth is very narrow. So those who want to live by the truth, there's one way for you to go, right? Those who do nothing but lie, which is what the the name devil means, one who lies, uh, they can go in an infinite number of directions. He will do almost anything to, to sabotage your faith. But with that being said, it's important to know some of the things some of the schemes of the devil that he will often employ in regards to believers. So there's a a Puritan book written in the 1600s by a man named Thomas Brooks. It's called Precious Remedies Against uh, Satan's Devices. It's widely regarded as uh, perhaps the finest work in English outlining many of the schemes of the devil. It goes through dozens and dozens of them. I'm going to hone in on just a few. There are four basic categories One is the schemes the devil uses to keep you from performing your religious duties. So, as you might expect, um, he'll put the pleasures of the world in front of us to keep us distracted from attending to all of the spiritual things that you ought to do. Or, uh, here's one, you'll probably notice this one, uh, the, the, the enemy will fill our minds with vain thoughts when we pray, right? Probably, if you try to pray often, you'll notice that one. By the way, it's, you know, I mentioned important not to see, um, see this as always, you know, the devil made me do it. Oftentimes, our flesh is perfectly sufficient to carry us off into sin. Oftentimes, we're so weakened by our flesh that our enemy says, I don't really need to worry about that person because they're doing fine on, on their own. And there are many sources to the problems that we have. Sometimes the physical uh, sources to our problem or suffering, sometimes psychological, sometimes moral, right? We're steeped in sin and we can't overcome our own guilt to that sin. And sometimes there's spiritual oppression. So important to know the strength of our enemy, but also important to know uh, that 
the devil made me do it is not um, an excuse that you can always use. So back to Thomas Brooks. A second category is how uh, the devil um, undoes all different ranks and classes of men. So he talks about how uh, for the rich and the powerful, he'll get them lusting after more and more power and more and more uh, status. I think it was Rockefeller, wasn't it, who was asked, when, is, when do you have enough money? And he said, uh, one more dollar. Right? Always one more dollar. There's, there's never quite enough. And uh, the, the enemy will also, th- uh, to the, the poor and the ignorant, will make them prideful in their ignorance, right? Oh, it's better that I don't um, have to employ all the means of learning about truth. I'm fine with where I am. But the other two categories that Brooks talks about, I believe, are the most prevalent. So I'm going to uh, present a couple of these, um, and I think you will notice Uh, some things that you've seen in your own spiritual walk. So one of these categories is the the schemes that Satan uses to draw us to sin. Schemes of temptation. So in order to uh, lure people into sin, what is it that the devil has to do? Well, he has to downplay the severity of sin, and he has to play up the love and mercy of God. See how he uses the truth and twists it to try and undo us spiritually. So, for instance, one of the schemes that he employs is this. He presents the bait of sin, but hides the hook. There you have a fisherman's illustration, right? He prevents the, the, the bait, he presents the bait of sin and hides the hook. He shows forth the pleasures of sin, but he hides the sting of sin and the guilt of sin that is waiting on the other side. Um, Satan actually used this in his temptation of Jesus, didn't he? Matthew chapter 4 brings him up, shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. You can have all of this that I'm showing to you if you bow down and you worship me. He was showing the pleasure of sin. He was hiding the sting of uh, the guilt. So one of the remedies that Brooks gives to this is that we must, by God's grace, by clinging to his truth, clinging to his word, we must learn to always uh, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Romans chapter 12. Another device of Satan. You'll recognize this one. Painting sin as virtue. Painting sin with virtue's colors. I'm not greedy. I'm just careful with money. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just the life of the party. In today's world, there are all kinds of examples with the moral and cultural revolution that we might add to this. Issues of sex, identity, socioeconomic issues, and so on. Painting sin with virtue's colors. So Brooks says that painting sin with virtue's colors does not make it any less vile. You need to be the kind of person that stands firm in the truth of God's word. And what God says is, and God's word never changes. So painting sin with virtue's colors does not make it less vile. Another remedy that he gives to this particular scheme of the devil is that you need to learn to look upon sin as you would after you have committed it. Or, better yet, to look upon sin as you will on your deathbed. That's really what we need to strive to do by God's grace. Allow me to look upon sin as I will at the end of my life. Because at the end of your life, uh, you're going to have regrets, right? If you've lived a human life, you're going to have regrets at the end of your life. And your biggest regrets are going to be when uh, you forgot about the glory of God and you were drawn into sin. A perfect example of this um, a person who realized at the end of their life, after living a very sinful, very hedonistic, pleasure-seeking lifestyle, Oscar Wilde, 
who um, had, seen, had lived one of the most pleasure-seeking lifestyles that had ever been seen in the world at that time. On his deathbed, he, was, uh, he became very sick. He was looking back upon all of the things that he had done, which involved um, involving himself sexually with teenage boys. He turned to his partner, uh, who was sitting there at his bedside. He said, uh, did you ever love one of those boys for their own sake? So here you have a pure hedonist who had lived for himself, who had lived for his pleasure, sitting, laying there on his deathbed, close to death, and he says to his partner, did you ever love one of them for their own sake? Where does that question come from? And, and then his partner says, no, I love them for my sake. And then Oscar says, I did too, I love them for my sake. And then he begged him to have a priest brought to him because he needed redemption. He knew that he was hopeless uh, before his God. You've got to know sin as you will think of it on your deathbed. Other devices in this category play up the love and mercy of God. It's God's job to forgive. Go ahead and sin. It's God's job to forgive. Go ahead and sin. Repenting is really easy, right? You just do it in the, in the first 10 minutes of the service on Sunday. Repenting's really, repenting's not easy, brothers and sisters. It's not. To be contrite before God, to confess your sin, and then to, to turn away from it with full purpose of endeavoring after new obedience. Repentance is not easy, right? So uh, Satan will play up the love and the forgiveness of God playing down the severity of sin. And then finally, uh, the last category that the devil uses is to keep us in our despair and agony over the sin that we have committed. So you'll notice a lot of these stuck in despair, can't find any hope. Here are the devices that that the devil uses. Suggesting to people who are struggling with sin that the conflict within them is not a conflict of believers, but of hypocrites. You're having this struggle in you, you're having this conflict within you, not because you are a Christian, but you could, because you are a hypocrite. You have falsely professed the faith and you are not in Christ. That is why this conflict is in you. Or here's another one. Uh, saying that, um, uh, saying to, to those who have no joy in Christ that you used to have joy in Christ, now you do not, you must uh, have falsely professed. You must not actually be in Christ because you used to have all this joy, all this peace, all this gladness in your Savior. Now you have none. So you must not be one of God's elect. You see how he lies. And you see how he, on the one hand, to draw us to sin, plays down uh, the severity of sin, plays up the mercy of God. On the other hand, once we sin and we're in despair, what does he do? He plays up the holiness and the wrath of God. God can't forgive you. Look at you. You're a fake. You're a phony. Another um, device, uh, well, actually, Brooks says, if that were true, if it were true that uh, those who are in Christ always only experience joy, he says, why, how could you go through the book of Psalms and you would always read phrases like, why are you cast down, O my soul, right? Because those who are in Christ can still experience the sadness and despair that comes from rebelling against God. So we'll close uh, with this one. Um, again, this book's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, a huge help to those struggling with some of these questions. Uh, this last one is the central thing that we need to remember in this spiritual battle, that Christ is greater than the devil, that he is greater than our sin, that he is able to draw us up from our despair, just as he does the first time someone realizes their need uh, for a Savior and trusts in him. So this last device of Satan is that he causes us to look more upon our own sin than to the Savior. 
He causes us to look more upon our own sin than to the Savior. I'll close by reading uh, this, this from Thomas Brooks himself. You know the wife who said to the bill collector, if I owe you anything, go to my husband. So may the believer say to the law and to the justice of God and to the devil, which is what we've been considering today. If I owe you anything, go to my Christ who has done all things for me. A believer may look to his God and plead thus with him. It is true, Lord, I owed you much. But your son was my ransom and my redemption. His blood was the price. He was my surety and undertook to answer for my sins. I know you must be satisfied. And Christ has satisfied to the utmost. Not for himself. For what sins had he of his own? But for me. They were my debts he satisfied for. Be pleased to look over the book. And you will find that it is crossed by your own hand upon this very account that Christ has suffered and satisfied for them. For every one look to your sin, brothers and sisters, you need to have ten looks to your Savior, who is perfect, who is sufficient, for he is satisfied the demands of our God. He has satisfied the accusations of our enemy. He has paid fully for all of our sins. We need to know that this battle exists, but we need to stand in the strength of our God. We need to stand in the strength that he gives to us through Christ and in his power. We need to learn and to know the schemes and the wiles of the devil so that when the day of evil comes, you might be able to stand. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. And we ask that you would bless us in Christ and through your spirit. You would teach us about this battle that is raging, that is ongoing. Father, that we would see the pervasiveness of our enemy, but in the midst of that, that we would stand in God's strength. And understand that he is vanquished, that he is victorious. We thank you in Christ. Amen. Stand together and sing all the verses of a mighty fortress is our God. Number 444.